And all this idea, well, you just got to be prepared because this is coming and this is terrible. And so the, the, the questions about supplies were on hand. But then also the main question that was there was, well, how do we protect ourselves? So there's all kinds of ideas that have been thrown out. One idea I had this morning was to stand before you at the very beginning with one of these on. Many people, wise people, educated people, have different opinions on this. My aim this morning is not to take a side. My aim this morning is to say that in a season, everybody was looking for some level of protection. Whether it's through a mask, whether it's through a face shield, whether it's through hand sanitizer, whether it's through gloves... Whether it's through a vaccine, whether it's through a fogger, whatever the case is, everybody was asking, how do I protect myself from getting sick? So there's all sorts of things that were suggested. There was all sorts of things that were devised. And so as we found these recommendations coming out from the CDC and other health officials, these recommendations were coming. And it was amazing how much of a division arose. You had those that thought you were irresponsible if you didn't wear one. You had those that were thought you were irrational if you did wear one. And the division was evident, not just in our societies, but in people abroad. In such a time that we were all wondering how it is that we guard ourselves from an unseen and really unknown danger, people were looking for hope and they were looking for help. Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 6 to a church. It's a young church. It's an early church. And many of the people in the church are immature in their faith. And this church is positioned in the middle of all kinds of lostness. All kinds of pagan worship. All kinds of idolatry. All of these things were around. There was all kinds of false teachings and false religions and false preachers and false prophecies. And there were all the things that were taking around them that to say well you know what we are going to buffet. We are going to oppose. We are going to threaten. We are going to try to minimize. We are going to try to silence the voice of the church and as Paul is writing to this early church he realizes that what Satan is going to do is Satan is going to use things unseen and things seen to try to come against the church to try to make the church sick to try to make the church anemic to try to make the church lethargic to try to do everything that we, for the last 11 months, have tried to guard ourselves from physically, Paul knew that Satan would do to the church spiritually. So as Paul is sitting there and he is writing to this church and he's wanting to encourage the church to stand firm in their faith and stand firm for their beliefs and their identity in Jesus Christ and he's looking for a way to try to explain to them the gifts that God has given them, the means that God has given them, the ways that God has provided for their protection and for their health and he's looking around and trying to decide how it is that he explains that the Christian then, just the same as the Christian today, we are are not helpless and we are not hopeless and we are not defenseless against Satan and his attacks on our spiritual lives but here's the danger that I think we see too often in the church today there's too much division to be spiritually minded now Paul doesn't leave a lot of room for debate 
We may have debates in the church today of the best ways to protect, the best ways to guard. You and I can have differences of opinion, that's okay. But when it comes to God's word, Paul says there is not a debate. There is not a decision. This is not something that is up to your opinion or not. I'm just going to tell you that you are in a battle, believer. You are in a battle and as Satan comes against you, you have the means to protect yourself. So if you find yourself spiritually weak, if you find yourself spiritually anemic, if you find yourself spiritually lethargic, he says take heart, God's protection is there. And I believe that we're living in a day and age that by and large the church today is sick. I'm not saying that just here at First Baptist Church in Wilson, I'm saying by and large the church is sick. I'm not saying the church is void of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the church is destined to fail. I'm just saying that the church has bought the Kool-Aid. It has bought into the idea that humanism and man-pleasing and man-serving and man-following is the way for success. And over and over again, Paul reminds us the way to have success is through the Spirit, led by Christ under the authority of God. So Paul comes in and he uses this imagery. Most likely Paul was imprisoned. He was stuck away in a jail cell and next to him he had guards. Many like the one that is up there. These Roman guards that were there. So as Paul is trying to explain to them and trying to find ways, metaphors if you will, to explain to them this protection that God has provided. He looks at these Roman soldiers and he looks the soldier up and down and he says, I'm going to explain the protection of God through the imagery of a Roman soldier. Now there's quite a few that we're going to work through during our time together, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 6, and we're going to start there in verse 13, work our way down through verse 20, and we're going to work through these pretty methodically, but pretty quickly as we think about these different ways or these different means that God has given us protection. Now you look there at verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand Firm. That's the whole thing that Paul is driving to through the rest of this passage is, is the goal for the believer is to stand firm. And I, and I put this there in the top of your notes that I, my, my big thought for us this morning is that God has purposed and provided a way for you to stand. I know there is onslaughts of relativism. I realize there is onslaughts of humanism. I realize there is all kinds of people out there with all kinds of different ideas. And there can be a lot of different opinions when it comes to the society around us. But when it comes to the things of God, there's only one opinion that matters. And that's God's. So Paul says, I want you to stand. I know that I'm writing to early Christians. I know that I'm writing to young Christians. I know that I'm writing to a church that is embattled and that is fighting a spiritual fight. But I want you to know that in the midst of that spiritual fight, you can still stand. Well, how do we do that, Spence? Well, notice he goes on there in verse 14. He starts to lay out at least six different pieces of the soldier's armor or the soldier's uniform, if you will. And then he gets down to another one. But notice in verse 14 how he begins to explain it. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So the first piece that he gives us is this belt of truth. You may think it's kind of odd that he would put belt and truth in the same sentence. It harkens us back to the idea of John 18 and verse 38 when Pilate is interrogating Jesus. And and Jesus tells him that he is the truth. And Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? Or think back before that in John chapter 14 and verse 6. When Jesus looks at those disciples that are there and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Paul is reminding the believers there is there is such a thing as 
truth. Now I realize we live in a day of relativism. We live in a day of uh, everybody has their own truth and everybody has their own opinions and everybody has their own ideas. But the reality is, is there is truth. There is truth in this world. And the source of truth is God. Through that triune head, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit, you have that Trinitarian picture that is there. But within that Trinitarian picture, there is truth. So therefore, what God says is true. You may say, well, Spence, how does that have to do with belt? When you think about a belt, now I realize that people use them differently for different things these days, but the idea of the belt in that time was the belt had several functions. The, the belt hold the, uh, the shirt down, hold the shirt tucked in, and hold the, the pants up from having the plumber's look. I'm, I'm sorry, Ron, but you know who's coming. So it, it, holds, it holds the pants up to, to keep you from having the plumber look. It, it helps keep the, the, peep, the feet from dragging or the, the leg pants from dragging where you're going to step all over them. The belt was something that a person would use to hold all of the stuff together in its proper place. If you think back to that Roman soldier, he had that belt. He would then gird up his loins as he talks about it on 1 Peter, uh, talking about pulling up there for battle. It was something that he would do to hold his uniform together. And so what Paul is reminding the believer is this truth, this belt of truth. It is what helps hold everything together. If we have no truth, then we have no anchor. And if we have no anchor, then we are adrift. And so many times in this world today, we have too many people in the church that are adrift. Some new book comes out. And it becomes a popular book. And somebody reads and goes, oh, I like that. Yeah, except for it's not biblical. A young man down there in Zanos, where we came from just a couple weeks ago, he, he, he texted me and he said, hey, have you heard about this preacher and about that preacher? And I said, no. And he said, man, I really like him. Would you tell me what you think? So I, I download some of the, the sermons and I listen to them. And the sermons are very dynamic. He's funny. He tells good stories. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's engaged. It's just a motivational speech. And we're in that season of life. Well, there's a lot of motivational speeches. There's a lot of how-to speeches. There's a lot of do-better speeches. But what the people of God need today is not a do-better. We need the Word of God holding our lives to the place that God has for us to be. So Paul wants to remind them that one of the means, one of the methods of protection that God has given the believer is the belt of truth. He has given us truth, not just in his word, but in his example, in his life. Everything that God has given us is true. And he says this truth will hold you to him. But then he goes on and he gives us a second means of protection there in verse 14. He says, standing therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of Righteousness. Now this breastplate of righteousness, if you're not very familiar with your Roman armament, the breastplate was just something that you put over your chest and your belly. And what it was doing was protecting your vital organs. Somebody throws a rock, somebody shoots an arrow. Somebody uh, tries to hurt you with a sword or something and you had something that protected your vital organs. But here in this context, Paul relates it to righteousness. And now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is just you and I living a holy life set apart to God. Think about sanctification. You think about purity. You think about piety. All of these things relate to you and I living a right life to God. 
right fellowship, right relationship, living in right standing before God. That is the righteousness. Now, unfortunately, you and I are not perfect, and therefore we fail in our righteous living. But the righteousness of God is therefore imputed to us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so therefore, we can be considered and seen as righteous Pure in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. But here in this example, there in verse 14, Paul says, You have put on, you have fastened on, you have put on this breastplate of righteousness. Now, what do you think that Paul is trying to get at? Well, he doesn't give us a lot of explanation, but I'm just going to put this out there for you. Righteousness prevents hypocrisy. Paul encourages us to put on the righteousness of Christ. Put on that holiness. Put on that purity. Put on that piety. Put on that submission and obedience. Put on the things that Christ would have you do. Why? Because when we are serving and we are seeking to live a righteous life to God, we don't have to worry about the hypocrisies of our life. There's a danger that we have right now in the church today because there's a lot of people that aren't in church today that used to be in church one time because they're not in church now. And the reason why they say is because all the hypocrites. Because they see somebody on a Friday night and then they see somebody on a Sunday morning and they don't match. And so people say, well, why would I want to go there? They're two-faced. They're a liar. They put on a show. They're, They're not the same person. And they see this hypocrisy. And this hypocrisy drives people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only does it drive people away from the person individual, but they drive the people away from the church. So it doesn't matter how the rest of the church is acting. If they see one hypocrite, it matters. And I'm telling you this morning that when he talks about this blessed plate of righteousness, he understands that they're not going to all be perfect. But he says, you and I should desire for the first thing when people when they see us, when they see our front side, when they see our, the, what we're presenting, they should see the righteousness of Christ more than the flesh of ourselves. That's not a Sunday school lesson. That's not a Bible verse to memorize. That's a way to live. Unfortunately, we start to think, well, I can have it both ways. We start to think, I can straddle. We start to think, well, I'm going to live like this in this area and live like that and that there. And we wonder why we are, we, we are so prevented from living the kind of life we want to live because we are not putting on righteousness every single day. We think it's just something that we put on on Sundays. And Paul wants to remind them, if you want to guard yourselves against the attacks of the devil, you want to make sure that this righteousness is there at the front because it prevents hypocrisy. It also prevents you having a guilt, con- guilty conscience. I need to tell this person about Jesus but I can't go tell them about Jesus because I just did this with them last week I want to invite this person to church but then that person is going to look at me and go you go to church I want to have an influence but I don't know how to speak to them because of what I have done or said around them and hypocrisy ruins our witness so he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. You go there on in verse 15. So he says, verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he goes in verse 15 and he says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of 
peace. He's talking about these shoes of readiness. You think about the shoes that we have today. We have shoes for every different type of life. You got basketball shoes and you got, uh, you got hiking shoes and you have working shoes and you have all these different types of shoes around and the shoes will know what kind of activity you are going to do. How many basketball players do you see that show up for a basketball game in Soleto Hills or they show up for a basketball game in Crepe Soles or they show up for a basketball game and they got the open toe sandals. There's one of those things that you have shoes for a particular purpose. Well, in that setting and in that stage that Paul is writing to, most of them wore some type of sandals. Some of them didn't have any shoes at all. But he reminds them that these shoes have a purpose. The shoes allow you to go and they allow you to go quickly. They allow you to advance. They allow you mobility. They allow you to get around. The same way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks about it here in the sense of the gospel of peace. He's reminding us that this gospel message is just like shoes for our feet and that it enables us to be ready to share and show the gospel to the watching world. It enables you and I to go and to tell people about Jesus Christ. We don't have to sit down and wait for the recipe. We don't to sit back and wait for the green light. We don't have to sit back and wait for someone to tell us what to do. We have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ so we can go and share it with other people. One of the ways that guards you and I and our Christian walk is if we're talking about Jesus all the time, we can't talk about ourselves. We've got too much of me in this world today. Everybody's focused on me. It's all about me. It's what I want. It's what makes me happy. You've got to make me happy. You've got to please me. And it's me, 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 me. We are being consumed and corrupted with this selfish culture. And it's all about you. It's all about what makes you happy. It's all what pleases you. And yet Paul reminds us over and over and over again, if you and I spend our lives talking about Jesus Christ then we won't be talking about ourselves or someone else. You won't have to worry about annoying people by always talking about you. You won't have to worry about gossiping about somebody by saying something you shouldn't be saying. You don't have to worry about saying something that would be inappropriate, crude, or might bring disgrace to the glory of God if all you ever do is talk about Jesus. Well, that seems kind of weird, Spence. It's kind of weird that we don't. You go back to the first chapters in the book of Acts, that's all they did was talk about Jesus. And what happened? You had 120 people reach the entire known world within one generation. Because all they did was talk about Jesus. And you know what I think we're going to be doing for 10,000 years into eternity? We're not going to be talking about OU, OSU scores, Charles. We're we're not going to be talking. We're we're not going to be having that rivalry back and forth. All we're going to want to do is talk about God. All we're going to want to do is talk about Jesus. All we're going to want to do is bring glory and praise to the Godhead who has saved us. And now we are in heaven for an eternity with. That's all we're going to want to talk about. So he says that he gives you these shoes, these shoes for readiness. But then, and I got to speed up, but then he goes on there. Hey, in verse 15, the shoes for the feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. This shield of faith. Now in that setting, there wasn't the same metallurgy as we have today. And so the soldiers would then go and they would find wood and they would craft themselves out of a shield. So they'd be advancing in the back. In that time, they didn't have Tomahawk cruise missiles. You didn't have M1 Abrams tanks. You didn't have the same firepower you had today. So they had arrows. They had spears. They had swords. 
Maybe some trebuchets, but that's kind of doubtful. And so they had these rudimentary weapons, if you will. And so these guys would have these big old giant wooden shields that was up there in that imagery earlier. And they, and they would be advancing. Now the Romans had metal. Most of the other soldiers, they didn't have any kind of metal. But so what they would do is, is the enemy would figure it out and they'd get these arrows and they'd roll them up in pitch and they'd light them on fire. And they'd shoot that arrow into that wooden shield and as it stuck in that wooden shield, it would start to burn. And the next thing you know, it would start to catch that shield on fire. And if you are sitting there holding the shield that is protecting you from the piercing of the arrow, and now that shield catches on fire, what do you do? You don't call Brock. <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't call for somebody to come help you. You throw the shield down because it's on fire. And then what happens? Better have that breastplate on. <laughs> Better have that righteousness all around you. But that was the idea. And so what Paul is using, he uses this imagery to say, this is what faith does. When you have that shield of faith in front of you, when Satan comes and he starts to doubt the goodness of God, when he, when he brings a sickness into your life, when he brings a tragedy in your family, when he brings a jerk boss, when he brings a troubled child, when he brings a financial burden that you don't know how you're going to handle. When Satan brings these attacks to try to get you to question your relationship and your faith in God, he says, put that shield up. Put that shield of faith that says, you know what, Satan, you can say whatever you want to say. You can bring whatever you want to bring, but I know that my God is faithful. I know that my God is good. I don't necessarily always understand. I don't always agree, and I don't always like, but you know what? God is truth, and God is good, and so you can put that shield of faith up, and what that faith will do then is that faith motivates it's our obedience. Because you know why I get up and I come to church? It's not because the recliner doesn't work. It's not because there's nothing on television. You know why I get up and I come to church? It's not because, you know, I, I, I serve as the pastor here. I get up and I come to church because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I have been commanded to not forsake the assembly of the believers. That is why I come to church. I come to church because I need the accountability. I need the encouragement. I need you people to notice if I'm not here. I need you all and I need to be sitting under the authority of God and the instruction of God's word. I need to come and worship. I need to be here. And this helps strengthen. It helps build. It helps foster my faith. And what does it does? It motivates my obedience. So many times we put shields up of isolation. Men are so terrible at this. You get your feelings hurt and so you just isolate. You and a woman get in a dispute and you isolate. And isolation of men is crippling the church and crippling the home today. And while they may not isolate visibly, they isolate emotionally. And they isolate spiritually. And they become to isolate to the point that Satan knows that, you know what, you can go through the motions and you can go through the steps, but as long as you are isolated spiritually, you will not lead, you will not encourage, you will not provide, you will not support, you won't do anything. And I know that I will be able to cripple the home and thus cripple the church. That's why we need men today to be willing to stand up and take that shield. And say, you know what? I realize that most of the sitcoms for the last 20 years have made fun of men. But you know what? That's not me. 
And you know what? It doesn't matter whether my wife agrees. It doesn't matter whether my wife likes it. It doesn't matter whether it's easy. I'm going to do what God wants me to do because that was God has called me to do. And I'm going to step up and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to step forward and I'm going to fight for my family. And we take that shield of faith and we say, you know what? It doesn't matter what Satan does or how he questions. We are going to stand for God. So he talks about the shield of faith. But then you go on there in verse 17. He talks about the flaming darts of the evil one there in the last part of verse 16. And then you get down to verse 17. And he gives us this fifth means. This fifth means of protection. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, obviously he's talking about a helmet. Some people, in modern day, it's a Kevlar helmet. But it's one of those things that would help guard your head from the pings and from the pangs and from the boops and the bumps. It was one of those things that would guard you in your life. So why does Paul talk about this helmet of salvation? I think it's first important that we remind ourselves what salvation is. Salvation is the moment that you understood that you're a sinner. And this sin separates you from God. And if a person dies in his or her sin, having never been forgiven of their sin, they die and they spend an eternity in hell. No do-overs, no second chances. No best intentions, no grading on a curve. But God realized that that was the price and that you were never going to be good enough to pay the price for your sins. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that we can be sitting here in 2021 knowing that if anybody is lost, anybody is guilty of their sins, standing in the judgment of God, they repent of their sins, they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, believe in the work that Christ has done on their behalf, cry out for forgiveness, They can be saved. God looks at them, takes the righteousness of Christ, puts it on their account and says, you are now forgiven. And when that moment comes, a person is saved and salvation has come to that person's life. Now why does he talk talk about that as being a helmet? you're here this morning and you're saved, what's the worst this world can do to you? The worst thing they can do to you is send you to heaven faster. That's the worst. That's the worst thing this world can do. The worst thing this world can do is send you to heaven faster. You're going to go to heaven if you are saved. That salvation is secure. That salvation is not dependent upon your perfection from this point forward. This salvation is not dependent upon some panel of jurors. It's not dependent upon how much money you have, how much education you have, how many possessions you have. It's all dependent on the work of Christ in your life. And this salvation comes and it is there to remind you and I that we are now free to serve and to sacrifice because we are saved. So the worst thing this world can do is take this life. But you know what? It doesn't matter what happens. I'm still going to heaven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how poor I am. It doesn't matter how impoverished I am. It doesn't matter how destitute I am. It doesn't matter how hungry I am, how cold I am, how miserable I am. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. This will just be a blink in the eye in relation to the eternity that awaits me. And he says, put that on and let that be a freeing moment. Like a a helmet of salvation. You think you have protection. You think you have security. It gives you confidence. He said, put that salvation on to know that no matter what happens from this point forth, you are God's. 
And yet, so people get this twisted because they think they get saved and they got to continue to perform. And they start to think it's all about the performance and I got to look apart or I got to act apart. God didn't save you to perform. God gave you, saved you to serve. God saved you to serve and to sacrifice and bring glory to him. And so Paul reminds them and Paul looks at this and says, you know what, church, if you are saved and that gives you all kinds of freedom that you can go all kinds of different places because you know that your eternity is secure. But you do know that everybody that you're going to, you have no idea whose eternity might or might not be secure. We've gone out of Mexico several times over the last years. common response when I ask people if they would like to go with us well is it safe no it's not you're going to drive 14 hours with all those nice people (laughs) you're going to drive 14 hours in a 15 passenger van all the way down to South Texas you're going to get down there you're going to be divided by a language barrier you're going to be divided by different cultural expectations and different ideas you're going to be crossing the international border you're going to be going into a country where uh, people are aware of you but I can't guarantee your safety and so they look at me and say well is it safe well what do you mean is it safe it's not any safer than where you're at right now But people will a lot of times base their willingness to serve and sacrifice for God based upon their own opinions. Paul calls the church to serve and to sacrifice because that you know that you're safe, so therefore you can give it all to God. He goes there, and I'm going to speed up. He goes there, uh, he continues on there in verse 17. He says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. God. He talks about this sword of the Spirit being the Word of God. But what I want you to notice with me this morning as we have looked at these previous five different articles, these previous five different pictures that he has given us, the sword is the only offensive-minded weapon. Everything else is meant for defense. The shoes to, to, to run, the belt to hold yourself together, the breastplate to protect yourself from the enemy's attacks, the shield, the helmet, all of those things. And yet God's Word, the Bible, the thing that we hold true as our faith and practice for our lives, this is meant to be an offensive tool. So I put there in your notes that God's word is meant to be offensive. Some people would think about this in a different way. I realize there's different ways that you can take this word. Some people can think it might be offending. So you go and you tell people that you're a sinner and they go, oh, you have no right to tell me I'm a sinner. I don't have any right to tell you you're a sinner. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And whether you accept it now or whether you accept it when you stand before God one day, because if you stand before God one day and you have died guilty of your sins, God will tell you you're a sinner. I'm telling you right now because you still have an opportunity to repent and confess and get right before God. But if you wait because no one is willing to tell you the truth and you wait till the very last moment, then God will tell you not only are you a sinner, but you are headed to hell. And so this picture that Paul gives them is is that they have this word of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, and it is meant to be an offensive tool. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we go around and trying to upset or trying to offend or trying to put people away. I mean in the sense of a sports analogy. In the sports analogy, you have offense and you have defense. 
That team gets the ball regardless what kind of ball it is and they are trying to score points. Now they are on the offense and they are advancing the mission. They are advancing the ball. They are trying to get to the end. The opposing team is now on the defense and they are trying to prevent the offense from scoring points. When we come to this world today, we are not to be in a perpetual state of defense, trying to huddle down, trying to hope that it doesn't get any worse, trying to hope that Satan will give us a break, trying to hope that well, it just, it'll let up any time. We can stand up and we can stand forth and we can say, I have God's word. So I know what's know what is the future of this world. I know what God has promised. I have the assurances of what God has said. I have the truth. And we can then advance because we have the truthfulness of God's word. But it's not an offensive tool if we don't know it. So that's why he brings us to these three P's. So he talks about this imagery of this Roman soldier in chapter 6 and then he gets down there in verse 18 and he gives them these three P's. Notice he says there in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He reminds them that prayer changes us before it changes them. So he's writing to this church in Ephesus and he's saying, I need you to be praying. I need you to be praying for me. I need you to be praying for the lost. I need you to be praying for the work that we are doing. I need you to be praying not just so that we have favor with them, but because I know that when you pray, it does more for you than it does for them. I'll sometimes joke with sometimes with people. They'll say, well, may I pray? And I said, absolutely. You need, you need the practice and I need the prayer. And what I'm trying to say is, is that too many times you'll say, well, I need you to pray for so-and-so because they've got this issue or they got that issue. We have a prayer request and those are all good. But do you understand that when we pray, we not only expose our heart to God, but God exposes his heart to us. Praying does more for us than it does for them. But Paul understands that one of the ways that they guard themselves from the attacks of the enemy is by prayer. And then he goes on there in verse 18. And he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. He understands that this perseverance matters because the perseverance is what forges testimonies. That faithfulness, that getting up, that continuing on, that being faithful to what God has called you to do, that forges a testimony for you to be able to say later on, I know I have faith in God because God has been faithful to me. And it forges these testimonies. But not only that, he goes on there. Verse 19, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Not only does Paul talk about prayer, he talks about perseverance, but he also talks about proclamation. And if you look there at the last part of verse 20, he says, as I ought to speak. In other words, what Paul is saying is that proclamation is not optional. Proclamation is not optional. Every single one of us talk about something. It's amazing you will get on somebody's Facebook profile. And you know what? People talk about that as you're creeping. Well, then why do they have a profile? Why do they have an about page if you're not supposed to look at the about page? No, I have that. And why, why, why does somebody put stuff on there if they don't want you to look at it? But then if you look at it, oh, you're a creeper. I'm not a creeper. I'm interested. It's the same thing as me asking you questions. What kind of TV show do you like? What kind of restaurant do you like? Where'd you go last week? What's your favorite movie? These are all questions that I can get answers from just looking at your about page. I don't know where I got on that. 
people will use that as a platform for proclamation. This is what I like. This is what I watch. This is what I listen to. This is what interests me. This is what and who I am. And they're all about proclamation. Paul understood that every single person alive today is proclaiming something. But are we proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ? You may proclaim the gospel. You may proclaim sports. You may proclaim yourself. You may proclaim your fishing. You may proclaim your hobby. Are you proclaiming the kingdom of God? So Paul comes in here in this passage and he says, you want to know what protects you from being spiritually sick, from being spiritually anemic, from being spiritually lethargic. You want to know what guards the church so the church can faithfully stand for the word of God and for the kingdom of God today. Put on these means of protection. So then how do we know if we're doing that today? How do do you know if you're growing in your faith today? Well, just three quick thoughts and then we'll be done. The first one is this. That our passions reveal our priorities. Our passions reveal our priorities. We were talking about it in Sunday school down there with David and the rest of those there in the fellowship hall at, out of 1 Thessalonians about how long after Paul was kicked out of one town, kicked out of one synagogue, kicked out of one people, how long did it take before he went to the next city and started ministering, started planning another church? How long, how long was it? Now, in today's world, somebody would go and they would get help and they would, and they would have to go and they'd have to get counseling and they'd have to go and take a, a sabbatical, take some time off. But it was noted this morning in Sunday school that he went and immediately just started doing the same thing and people going, how in the world does somebody do that? You get kicked, you get stoned, you get uh, ran out of town. How is it that you just keep on going? Because he was passionate about God. Because he was passionate about God. In high school on the football team, (laughs) Scott Estes was the running back. I don't know how many of you know Scott Estes. He's about this tall. He's about that big around. But the guy could squirt through anything. I mean, he could go between legs. He could go between shoulder pads. I mean, he could get anywhere he needed to go. And so he was an ideal running back. And so it was amazing. We would, we would be up there and it was, all right, Scott's going to come with the ball and he would come and he would squirt through. But eventually somebody is going to get a hold of him and boom, there to the ground he would go. And you think, this is it? That's it? (laughs) He's done. It's over. Bodies would clear off. Scott would jump up. (laughs) He could run back to the huddle. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And I'm thinking, this guy goes, gets the ball, gets creamed, gets up, gets back, wants the ball again. And he would do this over and over again. And you wonder, how does a person have that kind of motivation? Because he loved it. Can you imagine if we had that kind of love for God? I will go and I will be smeared. I will go and I will be ridiculed. I will go and I will be mocked. I will go and I will be outcast. I will go and I'll be shunned. I will go and I'll do all these things. And you know what? When that happens, then I'll go again. And then I'll go again, not because I want to be obnoxious, not because I want to be argumentative, not because I want to be that kind of a person that people can't stand. I want to be what God wants me to be. And so I am going to be passionate about what God has told me to be passionate about. Our passions reveal our priorities. Not just that, but your dress demonstrates your desires. 
Your dress demonstrates your desires. In other words, that we are going to perform like we prepare. Paul is looking at those Roman soldiers and he knows that they are dressed like this not because it's comfortable, not because it's fashionable, but because they are ready for the fight at any given moment. And yet, how many times do we as Christians not dress for the fight we are in? So we don't read God's word. We don't pray to God. We don't study God's precepts. We're not putting ourselves under the teaching and under the discipleship of people around us. Uh, we're not dressed for the spiritual battle that we are facing every single day. And then we wonder why we continually get mowed over. Because we're not dressed for what we desire. But then this last one will be done. Standing will cost you something. You go back up to verse 13 and Paul says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand Firm, And then he goes on in verse 14. He says, stand therefore. His whole emphasis is on the idea that he wants these Christians to stand. To stand firm in their faith. To stand bright in the world around them that is dark and dying and headed to hell. He wants the church to stand for truth. But if we stand as First Baptist Church in Wellston, it will cost us. It might cost us popularity. It, it, it may cost us likes on Facebook. It might cost us desires or hobbies or pursuits or interests. It might cost you having the kind of fun that you see everybody else having. It might cost you something. But that is what Paul understands. And Paul reminds them that if you're going to be a faithful soldier in the 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 army of the Lord, it's going to cost you something. So my plead with you this morning is, where are you standing at today? Where are you standing at today? Are you standing more with the world than with God? Are you standing more with yourself than with Christ? Are you standing where God would have you to stand or are you standing where you want to stand you bow your heads with me